This is the Carindale Salvos podcast. Now, the context of this story um, is that it's the fourth chapter of Samuel, and in the early chapters of Samuel, we've had the story of Samuel's birth. You remember Hannah coming to pray at the temple and, and the birth of Samuel, and then she dedicates Samuel to God, and then Samuel is called. But running parallel with this story of Samuel is the story of Eli's family, and pronounced Eli in Hebrew, but we'll do Eli because that's what you're used to. Now, the sons of Eli, so we're told in 2 Samuel 12 and 13, were scoundrels. So these are the priests, okay? They're scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord or for the duties of the priests to the people. And then if you, as you read through the first three chapters, you'll actually get more detail about what they were doing wrong, but we're not actually going there today. I just want you to know that there was a problem in Israel. And God had sent a man to warn Eli to get his house in order, but he didn't. And when Samuel is called by God, the first thing that God tells him is this. See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be expiated by sacrifice or offering forever. That's a pretty harsh statement. And poor Samuel, as a young lad, has to go and tell Eli that. But he does. And then, actually, Samuel disappears from the story for a little while. And what we get is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And that is these chapters 4 to 7. So the story begins at a place called Ebenezer. And it ends with us being told what Ebenezer means. So today we're just going to start at Ebenezer. The actual word Ebenezer is it's two words and it means stone of help. And, you know, we have lots of songs, don't we, in our songbook or that we've sung over the years where we talk about, you know, on Christ the solid rock I stand or, you know, we have that idea of building our house on the rock. And in a sense, that's what we're talking about here. God is our help. He's the stone on which we stand. And so the Israelites start this battle with the Philistines at this place called Ebenezer. So he... Um, and the other thing I need to say before I start um, drawing out the story for you is that all stories in the Old Testament are theological. So Hebrew people and Israelites today didn't write theology books as we know them. So theology is talk about God, okay? They didn't write um, systematic theology. What they did was tell stories and what they expected readers to do was figure it out, okay? So we're going to do some figuring out today. Why is this story here? What is it about? What does it tell us about God and about us in relationship to God? So this is theology. And, um, but it's theology in a way we can hang on to because, you know, we all like stories, don't we? Um, and we'll do this for the two weeks. 
So I want to talk first about um, what was going on in the story that we may not fully understand because, after all, it's a different culture and it's a long time ago. Now, if you were an Israelite going to war against the Philistines, what weapons would you choose? A shield. Well, that's a defensive weapon. Yes, what else would you choose? Someone called out? A bow. A bow. Yes, that's right. Keep your distance. Shoot them from a long way off. Okay, what else? A stone in a sling. I was thinking about David. Thanks for the, <laughs> wherever she is, the hint. <laughs> what else? A spear? Yes. Someone said a sword. I went looking up swords from this period. They're weird looking. They almost look like pruning hooks. And they probably were. So the Israelites did not have steel. They didn't have iron even. In fact, the Philistines had the technology of iron, but the Israelites didn't. So the Israelites were at a technical disadvantage. Um, but they went into battle anyway, and they went with those kind of weapons. And we know what happened, don't we? In the first battle, they were defeated. And so they got together and they said, why did God do this? This is the first question we ask when things go wrong, don't, don't we? What's God doing? And so when the troops came back to the camp, the elders of the Israel said, why has the Lord put us to rout today before the Philistines? Why did this happen? And then they have this brilliant idea. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh so he may be among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so they do that. And when they bring the Ark into the camp, the Israelites cheer really loudly and the Philistines are afraid. What is going on here? They are using the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord as a weapon. And it's a weapon of fear. But it's also a weapon of encouragement for them because they believe that by having the Ark there, they're going to actually force God into doing what they want. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, was not really a weapon, was it? It was actually the place where they stored the Ten Commandments. It was a beautiful box that was covered in gold and the Ten Commandments were put in it. There were rings put on the side so it was always carried with poles so nobody touched the ark out of respect for God. And then they put a lid on top of it. Now, it wasn't just any ordinary lid. It was covered in gold as well. But on top of it, at each end with the wings spread out over it, were two gold angels with cherubim. And so this was the ark, and they believed it was God's footstool, and they believed that that was where Moses heard God's voice. In fact, we're told that. It was kept in the inner sanctuary of the temple. But now they're in the land, it's stored at Shiloh, and they go up to Shiloh, and they get the ark, and they bring it down. Now, of course, the ark has to be managed by priests. So Hophni and Phinehas come carrying the ark um, for, as the priests. So they now think they've got it made. They're going to win this battle now. What happens? They lose the battle. Not only do they lose the battle, they lose the ark. Phineas and, Hoff, uh, Phineas and Hophni are killed. Um, the end result of them being killed is um, that Eli dies and Hophni's um, wife dies and the son is born and he's called 
the glory has departed. Would you like a name like that? Because in their heads, God has been taken away from them. So let's have a little think about that. It's, it, the ark has been used in some really significant places and I'm glad that we mentioned Joshua again this morning because one of the really significant places that the ark is used to show God's power is when they cross the Jordan into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. And Joshua is told to, carry, to get the priests to carry the ark into the Jordan. And this happens to be the spring flood time that they do it. So the river is running really dangerously. And, he, and he's told, Joshua is told, to, to send the ark into the river. And of course, Joshua is obedient, and so he does it. And as the priest's feet touch the water, the water stops upstream and it creates a wall. So it's a bit like the crossing of the Red Sea, you know. And they walk across the Jordan on dry land while the priests stand in the middle of the river holding the ark. So the people have that story in their head, that where the ark is, God's power is. And then, of course, when they do the Jericho thing, you know, and they march around around the walls of Jericho, the ark goes just behind the trumpeters, okay? So in a sense, the ark leads the full army around and we know what happens, the walls fall down. So you can understand them thinking that maybe you know, the ark is kind of like a magic wand. If we take the ark, we can make God do what we want him to do. Now, this is a problem because God is not able to be manipulated like that. So we can see that it didn't work and they lose the battle and the ark is lost. So theologically, what is going on in this story? What is the writer telling this story for? What do we need to hear from this? Well, the story shows that the theology of Israel was faulty, okay? It wasn't right. Their understanding of God was faulty. Now, it is absolutely true that they believed that God was God of gods. They believed he was the only God. They believed that he had power over every other nation and God, if those gods even existed. I think at this stage, they probably did believe those gods were gods, um, but God was God of those gods. So what would happen, what happened in, the, in that era is that when people went into battle, they would take their gods with them, or at least the images of their god. And so they'd march into battle with the images of their god, and whoever won would capture the other god images and take them back, and then it was like, we beat you, we're greater than you, and our God beat your God, he's greater than your God. And we actually have quite a number of records where that's described in battles that have nothing to do with Israel. So we know that went on in that era. So when the ark, which is the Israelites' only visual representation of God, it's not really a representation of God, but it's the closest they've got, when they take that into battle and it's captured, then really what they're hearing is that their God has been defeated. That's pretty scary. So what they believed about their God, that he was the God of gods, has been proven to be wrong because from their point of view, 
God has been defeated. Now, I just want you to imagine what that was like. Everything they'd based their lives on has just been shattered. I wonder what questions they were asking. They certainly asked, why did God allow us to be defeated the first time? But this is even worse. Would they have been saying, perhaps we've thought the wrong thing? Perhaps we've believed the wrong thing? Perhaps our God isn't as strong as we thought he was? Maybe he's deserted us. Maybe he is strong, but he's deserted us. In this story, there's great emphasis on the fact that Hophni and Phineas were with the ark and that Hophni and Phineas are killed. They're the only two soldiers, if you like, or Israelites that are named as having been killed in the battle. What was God promising earlier? What, was God, what did Samuel prophesy? That Eli's family would be punished. So if someone's thinking right, they might pick that up, but not everyone knows that prophecy. So the average Israelite is sitting in this very dark place, having to rethink the whole of their faith. And they're not getting much help. Now, what's really amazing is that the writer then immediately just leaves them in that spot. The the glory has departed from Israel. Okay, that's where you stop. And then it jumps to somewhere else. And it jumps to another story um, that we're going to have a look at just in a little while. But before I do that, I want to ask you, has there been times in your life, maybe you're even in one of those times now, where what you believed has been taken away from you in some way or has been raised um, as a question? So we go through dark times, don't we, where God seems to have deserted us. Haven't you heard people say, my prayers stop at the ceiling? Have you had those moments? Well, you feel like you pray, but it's not going anywhere. There doesn't seem to be answers. Um, You can't see your way through. And when we're in these dark places, we often wonder, um, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow whatever it happens to be? Why did he let that happen? We might even say, I've really served God faithfully, but why is this happening to me? What's going on here? Or we might even say, what did I do wrong that God is punishing me? We can't understand and we challenge what we believe and what we think we know. And this actually is a good thing to do. And it's part of growing in our knowledge of God. These questions can cause us to seek the stone of help. We go hunting. It's interesting with the Israelites, and I, and I really want to bring this out, that the Israelites had this belief that God was God of gods. At the same time, they believed that they could manipulate him. How can those two ideas live in their heads together? But they did, didn't they? They believed he was God of gods, that he could win this battle for him because he was bigger than the gods of the Philistines, and yet they also believed that they could take the ark into battle and make God do what they wanted. So what kind of God do they have? They have a spoken God as the God of gods, but in their hearts they actually believe that they as humans can order God around. And that kind of conflict can be in us as well. 
We can have, you know, we can speak that God is the greatest God of all. We can speak that Jesus died for us and saved us and we're free from our sins and then we can live totally differently. And I think that's what this story challenges us, us about. So often when we're in a dark place, it can be from events outside of ourselves that we've had no control over and God has allowed it to happen and we have to say, why? What is it that I need to learn about God in this space? Sometimes, however, we're in a dark place because we've made stupid decisions and the dark place is our fault. And then the question we need to ask is, why has this happened? Of course, the answer is going to be, it's something about the way I think or the decisions I've made. When we're in those dark places, it often feels like um, God isn't at work. But that's the hidden story I want to tell you about. In between what we're going to look at next week and this chapter, there are two wonderfully funny and clever chapters. And that is the story of what God does when the Israelites can't see what he's up to. Do you know this story? The Philistines take the ark and they put it in their God's temple. Okay, so they put it in Dagon's temple in Ashdod. And then they go home and they go to sleep. They get up really early in the morning. They come to do their morning worship, whatever it happens to be. And Dagon's statue is flat on its face in front of the ark. Okay, as if it's worshipping the God of Israel. And they are a bit disturbed by this, but they just think, oh, you know, it fell over. So they stand it up. And the next day, it's flat on its face again, only this time its head's fallen off and its arm, hands have come off. So it's serious, you know, God is winning. But at the same time that that happened, that second thing happened, all the people in the area around Ashdod get these tumours and they're starting to get suspicious. So they call all of the uh, Philistine leaders, there's five cities, they call the leaders together and they all decide they're going to send it to Garth because Ashdod doesn't want the ark anymore. So they send it to Garth and Garth ends up with tumours. So they, Garth says, we don't want it and they send it to Ekron and they get tumours. And after seven months of this business, they go, well, we don't want the ark. But maybe it's not God, maybe it's just coincidence. So they plan this little trick. How many of you have been farmers or had anything to do with dairy farms? Okay, you know when a cow has had a calf, it doesn't want to be separated from the calf. And if the calf is separated and calls out, what does the cow do? Does everything it can to get to that calf. Okay, break down fences, push people over. I've been on dairy farms. So... They took two milk cows, they took them away from their calves, they locked their calves up but where the cows could hear them. So the, the babies are yelling for their mums and they tie these cows to this cart that has the ark on it. Oh, and by the way, they've made five tumours just in case it really is God, the God of the Israelites who's doing the tumours. Five gold tumours, goodness knows what they looked like, it sounds pretty ugly. But anyway, they put it on the cart with the ark and then they let the cows go. Now, what a cow would normally do is, regardless of what's tied onto it, it would go to its calf. These cows didn't. They went straight to Israel. 
didn't turn. They cried a lot. They lowed as they went, but they went. And the Philistines said, oh, it was God. Good thing we got rid of that. And so the ark goes back. What I want to say before... Next week is the rest of the story, okay? So come back for the second edition. Um, What do we call it? The sequel, part two. Um, What I want you to know is that all the time God had a plan. This was all part of God's plan. He needed to deal with the bad leadership in Israel. But he had no intention of deserting his people. His intention was that they would get a good leader. And, of course, Samuel was a good leader. And so he had a plan. All along he had a plan and he was working the plan even though the Israelites couldn't see it. So what I want to challenge you today is when you're in a bad space, I want you to hang on to this thing that God always has a plan. And God is always working. And I want to remind you what Paul said. He says, for in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what's in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What then can we say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The answer is nothing can separate us from the love of God. The great story that we have is that God sent Jesus. And we can tell this story, but our stories map that out, don't they? Our own testimony, our own experience of God. There's that lovely old chorus that says, all through the years his providence has led me, you know, his abiding mercy has been all my song. And um, the idea is that we can look back through our lives and we can see what God has done. So in dark times, we know that God is still at work. This story that we've just read today helps us to know that too. Now, I don't know where you are at the moment, in darkness or at the end of a dark time or in a great time. Wherever you are, you can still take comfort from the knowledge that God is at work for our good. Seeking Ebenezer or seeking our stone of help is a good thing to do in both good and bad times. Finding our Ebenezer equals knowing more about God God of gods, Jesus and his sacrifice and his love for us and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God has provided all we need. We just have to go finding it. So we need to find our stone of help. And sometimes it means just saying it out loud and hearing the contrast between what we say we believe and how we live. 
You've been listening to the Carindale Salvos podcast. If you'd like to discover more or get in touch with us, visit us at salvos.org.au forward slash Carindale or head to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Carindale Salvos. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends about it. You can find the podcast on our website or wherever you get your podcasts.